Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Catherine Rowland. She's the author of The Pleasure Gap, American Women and the Unfinished Sexual Revolution. American culture is more sexually liberal than ever, but compared to men, women's sexual pleasure has not grown. For too long, this deficit has been explained in terms of women's biology, stress, and age. In The Pleasure Gap, Catherine Rowland rejects the idea that women should settle for diminished pleasure. Instead, she argues women should take inequality in the bedroom as seriously as we take it in the workplace and understand its causes and effects. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Catherine Rowland. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on. You've written this book, The Pleasure Gap, American Women in the Unfinished Sexual Revolution. So as I was reading this book, I was thinking you, I mean, you, you did, you interviewed like over 120 women or something, you know, in, in researching it and you do all this research. I wonder, do you get sexualized in a way writing about sex? Like, does that, I wonder how that affects how people interact with you when you're writing a book about sex. I mean, you know, is that, does that change the way people interact with you in, in your everyday life? It's been really interesting seeing how people react to that because I think you go out and you tell people that you're interested in sexuality and eroticism and half the population you talk to immediately wants to curl up their fingertips and say, Ooh, sex, like tell me more about that. And I was I was chatting with a friend recently and we were reflecting on how oftentimes the very problem that you're trying to get at is magnified in the response that it elicits. And I think one of the problems that I was consistently trying to address in the pleasure gap um, was an effort to destigmatize and normalize and approach in a straightforward manner issues of human sexuality, pleasure, and sexual function, and have it not be immediately wrapped up in these assumptions of titillation and prurience. Um, but on a, on a personal level, I think that my public health training and the circumstances surrounding my own life as I was writing this book meant that it was less of an erotic undertaking than I had perhaps initially envisioned it to be. I think um, I was aware of limiting my own erotic fascination in order to almost Masters and Johnson style deliver this information in a scientific and straightforward manner. And so I was aware of my own inroads into erotic fascination as I was reckoning with this material. Yeah. I mean, you say you, you talk about your training as a medical anthropologist <clears throat> inclines you to kind of look at eroticism and sexuality in a web of the culture that it creates, as opposed to just looking at, okay, an act people, you know, people do, you, you've got to look at it, it in the tapestry of meaning that the whole culture creates. Right. And that, and that really seems to inform how you, how you do your research you know, getting a handle on the culture in which sexuality and eroticism for women exists. I think precisely. Sex in and of itself carries no implicit value or meaning. 
I mean, it's if we're just looking at the crude mechanics of bodies interacting, that's not laden with any significance save for what we foist upon it. And so it's really getting at these layers of interpretations and personal values and social values that make sex fascinating or scary or as compelling as it is. And I mean, you remark early in the book that, well, we have this increased quantity of sex because of, you know, <clears throat> sexual liberation that's happened over the past several decades. You know, the, the, there's been a sort of a, a more openness to different forms of eroticism and, and we're getting a little more comfortable with it. But that that has not increased quality, especially for women, that that this, you know, sexism uh you know, it's, it's sex doesn't change. <laughs> you know, sexism is, is is ripe in sex and sexuality, and and so this is you know this is part of what you talk about in the book, right? That this um, it, it, that women are much more disproportionately unsatisfied with their own sexual experience than men are. I, that was this really striking tension that led me deeper and deeper into this project to begin with this sense that we're living in this incredibly erotic libidinous moment. And yet as that lands in the body and as that comes to pervade interpersonal relationships, it's not necessarily satisfying. Though I would put the caveat out there that even though a lot of our scientific data and survey studies and anecdotal evidence suggests that this moment is particularly unenjoyable for women. I don't think that men are necessarily faring well either. Even if men are more readily gratified by encounters, I don't think that that is the same as suggesting that they are satisfied on a deep level. And just as we tend to overly complicate female sexuality, I think we underestimate male sexuality at the same time and write off male satisfaction as something as kind of base as simply ejaculatory release. And therein we underestimate this range of deeper feeling and connection that men often crave, but that we don't afford them in many of our current cultural conversations about male sexuality. Yeah. And it's a weird inverse, right? If we, if we sort of, if we maybe err on the side of not letting women be, have a base connection to their bodies. Likewise, we oversimplify as though men don't have needs for yearning, connection, intimacy, and meaning, which is sort of like, you know, we're, we, we all we all desire all of these things, right? Exactly. And why we push women in, into the realm of emotion and push men into the realm of the physical and kind of deprive either side um, rich access to the full spectrum of human experience is, is a real impoverishment of um of our humanity. Yeah, it's interesting. I was wondering as I was reading your book that you know, I, I think um, Nietzsche somewhere remarks that you know some pre-Socratic came up with the mind-body problem, right? He called it a problem, and now you know ever since then we can't think of get through a day without thinking of this mind-body dual, right? So I wonder with that kind of thinking about ourselves when we start to refer to our bodies as something separate from ourselves, are we losing the battle a little bit already? Seeing our body as disconnected from who we really are. 
I mean, we're just so beleaguered by our embrace of this mind-body dualism that has haunted us for, what, millennia, as you point out. And I think when, when I refer to the body, I'm really trying to do so in a way that is reclaiming, that is about embodiment and the full access to our sense experience. It's, I think it is through our bodies that we know that we're alive. And again, when I say body, I'm not trying to put that forward as somehow distinct from the mind. I think that's a real false division and we can't possibly posit that mind exists independently of body. If anything, what I'm trying to do in this work is, is knit them back together. But as you point out, it is a bit of an uphill battle because we're so comfortable and almost by default tend to distinguish between mind and body as though they are separate categories traveling distinctly through the world. You um, remark early on in the book that this is this age old sort of uh, this age old can conventional wisdom that women are just less sexual than men, right? That this, you know, that, that and that, I mean, for, since, you know, it, sexuality has been discussed in, well, modernity, pre-modernity, this is just sort of asserted, right? That, well, of course, men are the more sexual uh, gender and women aren't. I mean, th this is something that, that you had to grapple with, right? In, in, in the research, like this kind of mythology. It's such a pervasive mythology, and I think that journalist, science journalist Natalie Angier really nails it on the head when, in her book, Women in Intimate Geography, she reflects on the fact that if female sexuality were as tame an entity as it is supposed, it wouldn't require all of these incredible links that we go to to constrain it, to deny it, to virtually imprison it. Um, and so it's this it's this odd tension that has been really marked through the centuries. Though if you go back long enough, you see that these distinctions didn't trouble our distant forebears quite to the degree that they do now. And I think we have to understand the desire to minimize or deny female sexuality as really emerging out of sort of Judeo-Christian um mythology and belief that was much more pervasive in the past couple hundred years as opposed to say how the Greeks conceived of female sexuality which was very very different and they much more readily endowed women with a sexuality that was comparable to that of men. I mean even just going back a couple hundred years before we understood that ovulation was an automatic function it was thought that women released ova in much the same way that men release semen and it required this ejaculatory explosion so there was a real emphasis on female pleasure and seeing that as inherently tied to reproduction it was only when we saw this real rift emerge between reproduction as our evolutionary aim and pleasure as this take it or leave it byproduct that you started seeing this tendency to minimize female sexuality to the point where we began erasing it altogether. In fact, the clitoris, after having been documented in early anatomical textbooks, even disappeared for a period in early editions of the of Gray's Anatomy. Um, so, so committed were we to this idea that it couldn't possibly exist. Did you ever think in your life that you would regularly 
throw around terms like ejaculatory explosion. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm guessing that's part of a regular part of your existence in a way that probably wasn't before this research. I think it should be an exercise for everyone to just go around saying words like vagina, penis, clitoris, orgasm, to kind of strip them of the loadedness that we tend to endow them with. It's um, it's it's been a a real exercise in empowerment and reclamation for me. I think as a woman, um, you know, raised without a lot of access to this knowledge to start thinking about it in straightforward scientific, this is simply my body. This isn't a point of shame terms. It's interesting. You talk about how one of the issues that for women in, in this, in the pleasure gap is that sex, it can be associated with coitus, with penetration, which, which, oftentimes it is not the most pleasurable thing for a woman as opposed to a sort of, you know, web of connection and intimacy and touch. And, and I was, I fascinated by this. You said that the average sex therapist says that the proper thing is 13 minutes of penetration. Where does that come from? <laughs> like I'm, I'm thinking 13 minutes, like hit the clock. I set my timer for the iPhone. If we get 13, we're healthy. And, and to qualify, it's three to 13 minutes. Oh, th- I thought it was 13. Okay. I thought I, 13 I, is like the, that's, that's a great end point. Three is considered adequate. And I think 13 was designated satisfactory. But where do these terms come from? It's really looking at the history of sex therapy, which was in its initial conception, essentially a marital aid. And the way that people were thinking about marriage then was a much more limited understanding of what sex should look like. And it revolved around penetration. And so it was getting the woman's body and willingness reprimed for penetrative activity. Um, and Masters and Johnson and early innovators in that field certainly delivered a lot more than just um, an emphasis on penetrative sex. But that has stubbornly um, marched onward as the centerpiece of bedroom life and what healthy sex should look like rather than a more expansive, playful dynamic that involves a range of different kinds of, um, a range of different touching and forms of communication. It's interesting because now, you know, we have, I mean, I I just think of like things like different kinks, BDSM, all these things like are, are so much more mainstream, right. Than they used to be. There were, you know, you can, you know, these, these vanilla safe word, you know, these things are thrown around in sitcoms and all these things like, and yet, and yet we, as you point out, we're not all people, but particularly women are with all of this expansive vocabulary and expansive understandings of, of what sexuality can, can entail. It, we're not much more comfortable in our own skins because of it. Right. In fact, it almost seems like we're less comfortable because there's all this pressure of, well, you've got to be, you've got, you know, it's, it, it's this sort of, you know, uh, like the pressure cooker of work, family, this way. I've got to have a great sex life. You know, I'm going to get, you know, I've got to, I've got to climb the sexual mountain so I can feel fulfilled. Right. So I can be fulfilled and so that I can inhabit an identity that is aligned with this idea that I'm a steaming sexual goddess and that eroticism is fueling my every action in charge and libido is enhancing my very aliveness. Um, 
Though, as, as you do see that, I think it's worth pointing out that even though a lot of these, what were formerly considered more fringe sexual activities, are being mainstreamed, um, I think that there is um, a disproportionate alignment between what we're seeing in terms of mediated visibility and what people are actually engaging in in their actual practices. And so while it might appear from the headlines that everyone under 25 is polyamorous and everyone who's been married for 25 years is secretly going to fetish clubs. That's simply not the case. Um, but because that is in the ether now more than ever, there's this idea that, well, I should be interested in that. And I should also be, if I'm not interested in that, at least embracing of the fact that that's taking place and, and open to exploring it potentially in my own life. And if my libido is tanking and if the charge between me and my partner is fizzling somewhat, um, it's probably my fault because I haven't opened myself to being receptive to these different um, options on the buffet table. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a friend who just wrote a book uh, called Seculosity. He was looking at how even though we're becoming a more secular culture, you know, allegedly people replaced traditional religion with food or parenting or politics or eroticism. And it becomes all the kind of, you know, not that this, you can reduce religion to this, but, but all the sort of um, guilt and shame inducing things that you can find in traditional religion. We, we find ways to put them into parenting or, or being a foodie or this. And eroticism, I think you're describing as well is, is no different, right? Sexuality is no different. We figure out a way to sort of, um, Rather, for it to be something that sort of, um, again, is guilt-inducing and, and we ought to you know, measure up to it rather than be, being an expression of freedom and authenticity. Right. And I think that we are also in making it incredibly pressure-laden. We're stripping the sheer joy from it. Um, that we're approaching it as something that we should do, that we need to fix, that we have to alter, that we have to tweak ourselves in order to more expansively express. We, we kind of misuse terms around leisure and delight and enjoyment um, when what we're really often talking about, um, at least for the women that I spoke to, feels like work. Um, it doesn't feel expansive and playful and delicious. It feels like another form of labor, kind of akin to dieting or forcing yourself to wear footwear that just causes incredible discomfort over the course of a long day. Um, and but but that women, at least in my experience, often themselves didn't see that difference. They were still what they were describing to me rang to my ears as explicitly like a form of work and they were still talking about it as a form of, of leisure um, in much the same way that we talk about exercise these days. I, I was a minute ago, you marked on the whole idea of like, Oh my gosh, everyone is under 25 is polyamorous and all this stuff. You know, these, these myths, I was sh struck by in, in your research, you found that like people like certain sex therapists found that, it's always that when they when there's a sort of venturing into open relationships and, and, and polyamory and all that stuff, it's generally the men that initiate it off, very often. And then they kind of once one therapist saying that they get it out of their system and then they're kind of okay, we did. But the woman's like, no, no, we're just getting started because seemingly it it offers a more complex texture, a more complex web of connections and meaning and intimacy that 
that that's it's it's not the sort of um, necessarily the, the uh, you know just frequent you know romps with many partners, but it, it opens up more paths for meaning and exploration for women in a way that that maybe they're denied in conventional kind of ways of of, of being sexual. I think women were really, in those instances, seduced by the experience of choice, which they had often simply never had before. Um, One woman who is a lawyer, um, middle-aged, described it to me as feeling the bottom really dropping out once she started considering that she could configure her her intimate relationships and her sexuality to look however she wanted it to look. And it didn't have to hew to this particular vision that she had both been sold on and had sold herself on for so many decades. And I, I don't want to, um, I think, paint the false picture that women are only interested in choice and not interested in just getting in the sack with a bunch of different people. I think that um, that becomes a safe um, interpretation that I think that there is oftentimes an inclination to ascribe to women's non-monogamous activities um, just a desire for connection um, with themselves or with other people in more emotive terms and to deny them the base kind of uh, sexuality that we hand so readily to men. Um, But that said, when I spoke to women, the message that I so frequently received was that it was just about feeling empowered to deploy their sexuality however they wanted without having to permission seek or to accommodate or to put it in the box that they had been told it needs to reside in um, that was so erotically fulfilling. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught? frustrated in traffic do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here if the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes or even just a solid maybe would you do something for me would you consider becoming a patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ken skillman ellis brazil david zoll Terry Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsmith, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. In context of 
part of the book we were talking about like female Viagra and and different sort of medical approaches to you know um, address you know the pleasure gap and female sexual dissatisfaction. You say that overall my sexual satisfaction was described in terms of agency. It was comfort with their bodies, self-awareness, and freedom to express and investigate their changing needs. Self-determination was not a matter of free market access to a pill. Consumer choice is a meager stand-in for personal liberation. And women, as we'll see in the chapters that follow, express desire in grander terms. I, I thought that was so, uh, such a well-written um, couple sentences and, and really summarizes, I think, a, a lot of what's at the heart of the book, that agency is 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 something that, you know, a sense of choice and freedom and liberate, like being comfortable in your own skin, feeling like you, you do have, you are an agent, a sexual agent, you know, the sexual being that, that is expressive. That's key. It seems to closing the pleasure gap more than consumer, uh, you know, drug consumer drug solutions or the sexual coaching industry, all these things that not, you know, they might have their place, but disconnected from agency, they're not going to address the issue. Thank you so much for, for calling that out because that, that feeling really came to me as I was up to my elbows in that particular material and just encountering over and over again, industry representatives and, um, commercial media calling out claims like men have 26 options in their medicine cabinet and women have none. And that's not fair. And equity means putting something on women's um, bathroom shelves that they're going to have access to. And that just has absolutely nothing to do with genuine empowerment. Um, And I, I think instead it, it really is about agency and the freedom of expression and feeling like you're safe and being able to plumb what that desire really looks like and articulate that to yourself and to your partners. And that in and of itself is truly often a radical act um, and one that many women, even women I think who would identify as being quite sexually liberated, have actually never engaged in because it is either terrifying to themselves or it's limbed in judgment by their communities or their partners or the cultures in which they've been raised and to strip away all of those layers of fear and shame and stigma and um, just the the consistent encounter with judgment and other people saying, no, you simply cannot, um, is, is to get at something deep and true that we rarely encourage people to access. But insofar as our desire and our eroticism are really, I think, nothing short of an expression of our own souls. I mean, this is um, a real act of, of liberation and a critical undertaking. Yeah, you also have a section in the book on mindfulness and how mindfulness, which of course kind of pervasive term now, but you, you, you connect this to sexuality and 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 female pleasure in the sense of it's part of it's connected to agency, right? Being able to be present in the moment in an experience and really um, be present there to the experience, to your connection to it, as opposed to sort of okay, um, you know, to do list, kids picked up this, check, check, okay, mind blowing sex, check, then we go, you know, floss and go to, you know, that you're that actually to to have a pleasurable erotic experience, you have to 
be, you have to be there. <laughs> you have to be present in it. It can't, it, 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 or else you're not going to feel that sense of agency and connection. Absolutely. And part of why I was so drawn to documenting the mindfulness research, particularly as it is presented by Lori Brado um, from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, is that not only is it incredibly liberating in terms of not being pathologizing, but it underscores this idea that you desire isn't something you have to fabricate. You're not trying to summon it from the passing muses when moon and stars align. Rather, you are dropping into the existing sensations that are already playing out within your body, but that you in our culture of distraction and self-monitoring and constant performance evaluation aren't usually attuned to. And some of the research there that I found particularly compelling was sort of looking at what's taking place so that mind and body, if, if you'll allow me to use that split again, aren't necessarily in sync with regards to our sexuality. Because um, research has shown that women will report sensations like, my genitals feel dead, I feel no desire, I feel numbness, I feel insensate, I just feel um, erotically unmoved. And yet when you bring them into the lab, what you find is that nothing is wrong with them physiologically. Nothing is wrong with their arousal. And oftentimes they'll even be having a robust genital reaction to sexual stimuli. Blood is flowing, they're engorged, they're lubricating. Um, but they report on a subjective level being completely unmoved by any kind of stimuli. So it's how do you just kind of silence the surrounding noise to allow women to drop into the sensations that are already taking place. And that was my real takeaway from the mindfulness work is that sex, great sex can really just be a matter of paying attention. Um, and also to, um, Mindfulness, I, I saw as an opportunity to reframe what we mean by pleasure to begin with and how pleasure isn't simply something as narrow as, oh, that feels good, that feels nice, but pleasure is really awakening to the range of sensation available to us overall, sort of crossing the full spectrum of how this lands in my body and just being present in a sense experience, um, which is something that we so um, rarely allow ourselves to to have. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when we use this term psychosomatic. It's almost like fraudulent. Oh, it's psycho. No, I mean, we are psychosomatic holes, and so if my psyche, you know, if if if, if there's things in my, you know, in my psyche that are stressed, frazzled, that it's going to affect you know, things physically in my body and these things, they mutually condition each other. And I think, I, I think you put that beautifully that, that you, there can be nothing wrong physiologically, but there's a psychic struggle that, that really blocks the ability to have the pleasurable experience. Yes. And I think it, it really speaks to our embrace of this mind body disconnect that we are constantly trying to prove the psychosomatic connection that defines our human experience. Um, yes, of course, 
mind state affects physiological state and function. And of course, how we move through the world and whether we perceive ourselves as empowered or imperiled is going to determine how much we, we feel in the, in the quality of feeling that we experience. I'm curious, when you were doing, you interviewed a lot of women, how long did take in general I mean, were, were women quick to open up and t- i mean did you have to learn i mean because this is something again we've said you know, there's, there's so much stigma there's so much uh, kind of loaded approach to sexuality did you find it challenging to get women to talk freely in your interviews there was a real range i would i would say that there was um as much range amongst the women I spoke to as there are sort of different tones of desire out there. Um, Some women felt very comfortable opening up really quickly. Um, Though I, I will place the caveat there that even for women who could speak quite frankly and freely about things like, um, extra marital liaisons and when they first had sex and the kinds of sex they liked, it was still a struggle to actually um, coax women into talking about feeling. So not just did you have an orgasm, but how did that orgasm actually make you feel? And I think that is one of the real last taboo areas in realms that we're comfortable discussing openly. We might be um, much more fluent these days in talking about sex acts and positions and frequency, but to actually get at quality on a deep personal level is almost like too personal. That's crossing beyond a threshold. Um, but I, I felt that overall women, um, professed relief in being able to talk about these issues in a frank, non-stigmatizing safe way, um, for a number of women, um, and, and I've, I've shared this before when talking about my reporting. Uh, I was really blown away by the near universality of trauma that women shared with me, either direct experiences of trauma or um, sort of an accumulation of smaller exposures. But for a number of women, our conversation was one of the first times they'd ever spoken about that. And as painful and difficult as it was to return to those stories, I, a number of them also thanked me afterwards for providing them with the opportunity to talk not only about the event, but for the first time to unpack how it had played out across their lives, sometimes for decades. It's interesting you talk about not, we're, being able to converse about positions more comfortably and yet disconnect from feeling. There was a female comedian on Howard Stern last year and she was joking about like guys just want to have anal and it's, it's just on the menu now. Like when did that get on the menu? And, and you report like, like, like a vast increase in women who are engaging in anal sex and most of a lot of them not enjoying it (laughs) and still doing it. Like it's just, I mean, it's interesting the disconnect between that. I think, you're highlighting here this, even though we may be more open to talking about positions and this and that, that we're, we're no more connected in some ways to, to the experience itself. 
Right. And the anal piece in particular, to me, underscored this idea that I think on a very positive way, we now have female sexuality aligned with our overall understanding of female health. To enjoy sex, to want sex, to participate in sex um, has gone from being an aberration or a perversion to something that's expected of our overall well-being. And yet, now that that expectation is there, the quality of sex we're having still hasn't really caught up to support that. And so women are compelling themselves to participate or not just compelling themselves or are involved in relationships in which they feel compelled to engage in activities that they don't necessarily find enjoyable, but around which exist these stories that to do X, Y, or Z is to be um, a liberal, liberated, um, sexy individual. And those stories, I think, are especially loaded for, for younger women um, where that alignment between feminism and kind of hip swagging um, sexuality are really enmeshed these days. Yeah, you, you know, one of the interviews, one of the women you talked with, remember in the book, you, she said, you know, I realized I could be a good girl or a bad girl. And in between that, you could be a bad, good girl or a good, bad girl. <laughs> I just found that like these, these sort of typecast roles. It's, fa- it's fascinating, but, but, you know, but I, I feel like she's articulating something that would make sense to many, if not most American women, like these, these kind of, these sort of typecast roles. I was really shocked to see the frequency with which those typecast roles continue to rear their wearied heads. I thought we'd really laid a lot of those to pastures some time ago um, and was stunned to see this these reinterpreted variations on these tired tropes continuing to make their way along in um young women's development and growing psyches. Um, but that it's now expectation. I think under the underlying story hasn't changed, which is that there is a tension between, um, external performance and the kind of internal modulation of, of feeling and desire and that women still feeling like they need to, walk this tightrope between how they are presenting and what it is they actually want and feel. One of the things I found like so kind of uh, surprising in the, in the, in your research is that you, to be a sex coach, there's no like certification. It's different than being, you know, a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist that, that is connected to women's health, but you could be a sex coach. You could just hang a shingle. I'm a sex coach. Here I go. You know, like, and, there's no ethical criteria for it. There's no sort of, there's not a lot of standardization or anything like that. So you just kind of can hang a shingle and be a sex coach. Anyone can be a sex coach. I was shocked to find that that was the case that, and I think one of the really preeminent and I think incredibly qualified, smart, thoughtful sex coaches that I did speak to Patty Britton told me in an interview that part of the problem with her field is that literally anyone can hang a shingle and say, I'm a sex coach and start collecting money from um, the hungry, sometimes desperate populace out there that's looking to understand what sex is all about. Um, 
And yeah, isn't it, I mean, self help culture, the, the you know, self help books and 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 podcasts. It's overwhelmingly women that consume it. I mean, more than men. And and it and some of this is again the guilt inducing. The I've got to measure up. I mean, it seems like some of this sex coaching industry, like uh, so much of the self help industry, just winds up contributing to self loathing. <laughs> But in this pernicious way, in that out of you know one side of the mouth, you hear this is all about empowerment and reaching your true potential. And I think a lot of women enter into these um, pursuits, you know, where whatever part of the self help industry you're you're wading into, through a real desire to um, achieve empowerment and to cast off their repressive baggage and awaken into the fullness of themselves um, without realizing that at the same time, then they're unwittingly consuming this idea that they're broken and damaged and they're the ones that need to change as opposed to engaging in a larger overhaul of the systems that are making them feel that way. And that was really my main critique of self-help here. Um, particularly these days, uh, the way that it's co-opted feminism to make self-help seem like this is a feminist undertaking, um, but leaving the systems of inequity intact and just focusing on renovating the individual in question. Yeah, it seems like from reading your book that the kind of agency and empowerment that leads to real sexual connection pleasure for women is something that's more received than achieved the the an openness to to yourself receptivity yourself as opposed to achieving like you're climbing the the consumer mountain or something that's it seems like that re- reception piece and acceptance is is more at the heart of it than some kind of you know consumer achievement well i think it's really radical to get to a place where you realize that there is nothing to achieve and that that's a bunch of garbage that we've often been force fed over the course of our lives and to think about sex in terms of frequency or performance standards is a service to no one. Um, but to reframe it as realization and that pleasure and desire are passing states, not, um, stable traits that, um, are going to change with the days and with our experiences and that we really need to just be receptive to understanding what the interests and demands of our own um, bodies, hearts, minds, and souls are on a, on any given day. Well, I think the pleasure gap definitely is a contribution to the, to the cultivation of, of reception. Um, and I, I hope uh, it's, I hope that it's widely read and that um, it helps people get more comfortable in their own skins. Well, thank you for that generous remark. Well, thank you. Thanks for spending some time talking with me about your book. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great check it out spread the love and goodness if you found it here also if you could go please 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 it takes like 60 seconds go to itunes and write a review and give it give a rating to the podcast it really really helps especially as things are getting off the ground 
And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Catherine for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, The Pleasure Gap. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.